you have the white women who are starting to organize and you have black women who have already started to organize um, with um, her in um, Tuskegee and at Tuskegee um, Inst- Institute at the time, but also um, Adela, uh, Adela Hunt Logan as a part of another larger group, and that's the National Association of Colored Women. Um, and it's these club women where, um, you know, in these women's clubs and in this national organization, local, then national, where she's able to bring forth suffrage as a real um, um, uh, issue and to actually organize other women on, on this issue. Hello, I'm Tanya Scott Williams, your host for Why It Matters, Black Alabamians in the Vote and Alabama Humanities Alliance podcast. And you just heard from Dr. Tara White, a historian and educator who's an expert in women's history, civil rights history, and public history. In this episode, hear my conversation with Dr. White about African-American suffragists in Alabama at the turn of the 20th century. Join us as we begin our podcast series exploring Alabamians' long fight to fully engage in the electoral process. This conversation includes Project Poet Ms. Ashley M. Jones, who you'll hear throughout each episode. Let's join the conversation with Ms. Jones. Thank you so much, Tanya. I'm so excited to be here um, and to share some poetry. Um, So I wanted to read a piece that's called, I Cannot Talk About the South Without Talking About Black Women, which I think is self-explanatory. My grandmothers made America, made the fibers that made us warm, made us invincible, heroines. To tell you who they are, I must start with who they are not. Servants, kitchen-bound mammies, silently obedient wives. We can't, in our modern comforts, imagine the survival they learned was theirs to claim can't hold the light they burned through this colonial darkness. What tricks this nation, this American South pulled minute by minute to keep my grandmothers convinced. The body you're in is not enough. Your race and your gender work together to mark you less, to mark you takeable. But what they didn't know was my grandmother still had an unmovable strength enough to build a bridge from here to heaven. I know when I leave this broken earth, I'll find them there, sweetening every hour. My grandmothers raised a generation of American men. There is no other way to say this. Look at any Southern family and you'll find somewhere in a past most will not claim a black woman. These men who call themselves bootstrapping and self-made, somewhere there's a black woman and her unthanked hands who lifted them to where they are now. My father tells a story of the sons of his grandmother's employers, how they, instead of the pension she was promised, decided to give her a damned old tire, an old suitcase, dusty in the yard. What thanks is this for the years she raised that family, for the care they cannot forget? My father could never forgive those men, their Southern tradition, their American tradition. Even now, 
They tell us black women are going to save this whole nation with votes or magic or our style taken and renamed. But this is no longer the land of masses and mammies. And we are only superheroines for our own daughters and sons. My grandmothers did not give their lives for me to keep nursing this country, to keep shucking and jiving in a bizarro American dream. My grandmothers are worth more than this corrupt remembering. Now there is no room for the Dixieland lie. We no longer hold these truths you made us accept. Under God, yes, we hear him singing a song of powerful love despite the united hate of America. Grandmothers, women made of salt and spirit, you are faith continuous. Continue us, raise us to be heroes and heroines, to tell this country that we are not mules, not beasts. You, an army of workers and wives, we hid our fears and woes in your indestructible, ever-present ladiness. The blood you pass down to us is all we will ever need to save our lives. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. I remember you shared with me this poem, and I was excited about it tonight because I felt as if it complemented uh, the conversation that we were going to have tonight, and certainly certain aspects of it certainly speak to where we're going to go, I believe, in this conversation. So thank you for that, for that, Ms. Jones. And now uh, for tonight's conversation about Black suffragists in the Deep South, uh, where we're going to draw from uh, Dr. Adele Logan Alexander's memoir, Princess of the Hither Isles. And so to have that conversation with us, we're going to welcome Dr. Uh, Tara White. Uh, Dr. White serves as history faculty member and former chair of arts and sciences at Wallace Community College Selma in Alabama. Her research areas include public history, Southern history, civil rights history, African-American history, and women's history. She also has uh, professional experience in museums, historic sites, and archives. She previously served as the cultural heritage manager for Alabama State University. Uh, she has also worked for the American Association for State and Local History and the Alabama Historical Commission, where she was the site director for the Alabama State Capitol and the Montgomery Greyhound bus station, which of course we now know as uh, the Freedom Rides Museum. Dr. White is active in numerous professional associations. She has served as a panelist at numerous conferences and as a consultant, and lecturer, and guest speaker for a variety of uh, local history organizations, museums, and universities. Uh, she earned her PhD in public history from Middle Tennessee State University, a Master of Arts degree from the Cooperstown Graduate School, and a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Dr. White, welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. Listen, I remember when we talked about a week or so ago, it was our initial introduction after, you know, the you know, conversation about uh, who the guests were going to be. And I got on the phone with you thinking I was just going to have a, you know, brief little conversation, kind of give you an overview and kind of hear your thoughts. We wound up talking for like, what, wow. I mean, like 30, 40 minutes. I was like, wait a minute, we got to stop talking. We cannot do the show now. Now, okay, that's right. It was wonderful, absolutely wonderful, and 
I, which added to the excitement that I had about uh, about this wonderful project, being able to have you on tonight, uh, just in those few minutes that you had, I mean, you had me all excited you know, to go out and, and read more and, and to just really, you know, take in where we are right now, you know, um, and really reflect on the past. Um, so it was, I was really inspired by that. So we're going to dive uh, right in. Well, we, we we did have a wonderful conversation. I enjoyed it. I really did. It was great. I'm always happy to talk about Black women. So, hey, I could feel it. I'm telling you, I was I was motivated. So, um, so the subject of, of this uh, intriguing uh, book, uh, this work is uh, Adela Hunt Logan, uh, Dr. Alexander's um, grandmother. And she uh, explores her life as a suffragist uh, during a very turbulent period in our country's history, um, as well as she talks about family relationships. And she kind of gives us uh, sort of a sneak uh, bird's eye view of some uh, pretty uh, renowned figures uh, in, that, in that period. So it's, a, it's packed with some wonderful uh, history and folks uh, that we get to experience in a different way uh, from this book. Um, but the women's suffragist movement uh, was well underway at that time. However, Black women uh, were not welcome, basically. They, they were not welcome, and in some cases, they were barred from participating. It was all about race, um, and um, you know, there was just no place for them within that movement. Can you briefly describe for us the political backdrop uh, from, from which we're speaking? So... Um... She is looking at, you know, primarily what's happening um, in Alabama and keep in mind in, in Alabama and, and the South, around the South. And keep in mind um, what ha what um, is not apparent in um, the in this book is that um, only a few years before, you know, before she gets here and before she gets involved in the suffrage movement, um, the state of Alabama decided to redo its constitution. And so um, the political backdrop is that um, there had been a, an organized movement to pretty much kind of eliminate African-Americans from the political life of the state. Um, and this is coming out of a period of um, very active um, Black participation during Reconstruction. That, that pretty much ends in Alabama about 1874. But um, you know, the post-Civil War South was um, a place where you had uh, white and Black um, uh, political actors, and you had um, Black elected officials for the very first time. Um, and so um, you have a state house, you know, during this period that's full of Black elected officials from a bunch of places across the Black Belt. Um, you have um, a Black man in Congress. In fact, um, you know, I often chuckle when I think about Congresswoman Terry Sewell because um, she she's, you know, she's the first as far as, you know, woman to go from that district. But, you know, we've, we've had a, you know, there's been a, an African-American um, in that chair since Reconstruction and and um, um, Benjamin Sterling Turner, 
right? And so, um, you know, it's coming out of this, this period where there is, you know, this movement for white supremacy to eliminate African-Americans, make sure that they don't have a political voice and they don't have the right to vote. And so the Constitution has pretty much been rewritten. Um, and and I, I use the proceedings from the convention for my students um, so that they can see that the convention goers are very open about you know, the whole purpose that we're getting together is to eliminate the Negro from right. political life in the state. And so yeah. um, she's coming into, you know, uh, um, um, that that um, atmosphere, but now in that environment, political environment. But keep in mind also white women are present at that constitutional convention as well. You know, they make their first pitch for the right to vote. During that time, They're, they go to the convention hoping that they would be included, right? Um, and you have Frances Griffin and um, some other uh, white women go and, and make that pitch. And, um, of course, it's turned down, but um, that, that's the first leg of the um, white um, suffrage movement. And so you have these, um, uh, you have the the white women who are starting to organize and you have black women who have already started to organize um, with um, her in um, Tuskegee and at Tuskegee um, Inst Institute at the time, but also um, Adela, Adela Hunt Logan as a part of another larger group and that's the National Association of Colored Women. Um, and it's these club women where, um, you know, in these women's clubs and in this national organization, local, then national, where she's able to bring forth suffrage as a real um, um, uh, issue and to actually organize other women on, on this issue. So there's a whole suffrage committee and everything um, in the National Association. Wonderful. And um, a little later, uh, we're going to dig into the, some of that club activity. Um, that was a part of some of that great conversation that we had a little while ago. So I certainly want to touch on that. Um, how is she uh, emblematic of, of, a, of a Black suffragist in the Jim Crow South? I mean, she, in her position, represented quite a bit. Uh, so how, how is she emblematic of, of, of this position? And so most of these women are um, are involved with suffrage, and and they're not involved in the um, white. And, and and if we're talking specifically Alabama, uh, white suffragettes and black suffragettes don't talk, don't really talk at all. Um, and and that's that's unfortunate, but it's tr it's true. Um, there is no connection between the white movement and the black movement. And in fact, uh, one reason. Um, one compelling argument that the white suffragettes make is that, you know, uh, allowing them to vote would actually counter the votes of black men, right? And so, you know, what, what they're, you know, they're really trying to, yes, they want to represent their interests as women and they want to have their own political voice, but they're also, um, you know, collaborating with um, the, uh, powers that be to continue to promote white supremacy. So it's one more um, step towards white supremacy. Um, but Logan and the folks um, who 
are organizing in these suffrage organizations, you know, they are amongst the um, first generation of African-Americans who go to college, right. who are college educated. And for the most part, they are um, educators. You know, you'll find them at, not only at colleges, you know, these these historically black colleges that have, have formed across the, the, the South during this period, but you'll also find them in local schools that have that have um, been created during this time um, out of re- that, that come out of reconstruction. You know, one of the things that uh, we see um, um, created during reconstruction is free public education uh, for everyone in the South. Right. And so you find um, in these black schools, all of these um, normal school and um college educated, uh, some of those college educated women end up there. Some of them end up on the faculties of, of colleges and, and universities, but they are all committed to uplift. They're all committed to making their communities better. They're all committed to actually um, reaching back and, and making, making an impact in their communities. So you mentioned uh, that she she's a part of this generation of folks who are you know, newly educated, you know, there's um, maybe, there's a wealth difference, perhaps maybe in some segments of the community. So I'm curious about uh, the work that she was able to do. How did her station in society um, separate or not heard from uh, other uh, other, uh, parts of the African-American community? Was she well received? You know, this is also around the time that the work that uh, Dr. Uh, Booker T. Washington was doing at Tuskegee University was along the, the respectability line, whereas others were maybe looking at this period from a different angle. So how was, how was she in this position uh, received within the community? Um, she, she and the women of that period are well received. Um, one of the things that the Tuskegee Women's Club specifically do, um, they're known for is their outreach to rural um, African-American women through their mother's clubs and their mother's meetings. Um, and so they are looked to and people, people actually receive um, their, their counsel. They receive, you know, there are women, local and, and rural women, rural black women come to their mother's meetings um, in town. And, and in fact, um, they, they had a building in Tuskegee, uh, downtown Tuskegee, where um, they would actually hold night night classes and um, night schools and and, and other kinds of outreach um, activities for folks. So you had um, a variety of things happening, but um, there. Keep in mind also that this is. Um, you know, during the time that Jim Crow was being laid down. And so, um, and when I say um, um, laid down, I mean, um, you know, there are not hard and fast um, in her, during her earliest period, there aren't hard and fast rules uh, or hard and fast laws. This is during, this is also the time where those laws are being passed that legally separate African-Americans from whites. And so, um, but, but they, they lived in a separate world anyways. And so there wouldn't have been, although there was a class difference, you know, market class difference between women like Margaret Murray Washington and Adela Hunt Logan and others, um, they are respected in their communities 
and they are looked to, you know, women look to them for guidance and um, for assistance. And so um, there's, there's not a, um, I guess, class resentment or um, any of, of that kind of thing. Um, happening at that time because everybody lived pretty much, you know, outside of Tuskegee in other places like Montgomery or other um, other cities in, in Montgomery. They they would live all live in the same communities, right? Mm-hmm. And right. so you know um, that that's you, you're not going to see um, those people living somewhere else other than um, in, in the same areas as um, as working class um, um, black people. Yeah, very good. So, so Margaret uh, Washington, uh, the wife of, uh, of Dr. Booker T. Washington, uh, she established the, the Tuskegee uh, Women's Club in um, 1895, I think it was. So, uh, could you tell us? You no, know, I really want to unpack the, the dig into a little bit more about these clubs. What was the goal of of club women, and and how did they fold into of this work for advocating for suffrage on behalf of, of, of Black uh, Southern women? Well, um, the Tuskegee Women's Clubs, um, which, which, is, which are formed, or Tuskegee Women's Club, which forms, um, actually predates the National Association by a year or so. Um, the, the purpose of it is really about, um, it's, it's twofold. Um, women's clubs in general, it's about um, um, improving and sharing information among the club women, but it's also an opportunity for them to to make an impact in their world, and um, that impact is, um, it, you know, it's educational, it's political, it's social, it's economic. Um, they really do a lot of different things. It's not just one thing. Because most of these women are educators, you'll find a lot of um, a lot of their um, activities and their programs are geared towards teaching. Um, but they they do all kinds of stuff um, from um, con- you know advocating against things like convict leasing mm-hmm. to um, um, actually um, writing letters um, about Negro juvenile lawbreakers, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that the state puts these, you know, children who commit crimes in the same prison as adult men, right? Right. And so these women are, um, they they go in and they write letters and um, really meet with the powers that be in an effort to try to save these children. Um, They do other things though. They create kindergartens in in times before, as the kindergarten movement is starting in Europe, right? They create kindergartens um, for um, rural children. Um, and, and they are really cutting edge in the areas of education. Um, they are the people who are testing out, testing out new theories and new ideas and trying to make a difference. And, and keep in mind that the people they're educating, um, I talked about the night school. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the people they're educating range from, you know, little bitty kids, little children to um, old men and old women. Right? right, old men and old women who do not um, cannot read or write, 
And this is, you know, we, we assume that we, we make assumptions about literacy rates, but even into the 19 teens and 20s and 30s, there are, you know, a- African-Americans who, who can't read or write. Um, you know, I think about my own um, um, grand, great, grand, grand, great grandparents, my grandmother's, my maternal grandmother's parents, neither, neither of them could read or write. And um, my great-grandmother, as a matter of fact, before she died, um, because she was making real estate transactions and other kinds of um, business um, um, she, business decisions and signing papers, her, her daughters taught her to write her name, mm. you know. So um, they're, they're really trying to transform their world. And they are... <laughs> They are. They have their hands in a little bit of everything. Right, and it's important work because, as you know, as you as we know, this is these are folks who have moved from a period of enslavement, where you know, you know that, that of course means they're shut off from any opportunity except for a very rare few who may have been able to learn to read and write. But for the most part, you know, uh, you know, they could be subject to death and other things if they had this. So. It just and I see exactly what you're saying. You know, these incredible women are creating opportunities, uh, and and are innovators, and um, and have uh, and because, as you said uh, in the conversation, that uh, we were all within the same community, are able to be really impactful in in trying to move uh, the community forward collectively. Yes, and so they share communities, they share churches, um, they shared. Um, um, civic organizations because you know the truth is that not we when we think about the colored women's clubs we think about clubs that are you know full of women who are educated but they're uh, college educated but there there are women in in civic clubs who are not and in fact um one of the um one woman one particular lady from alabama who um eventually rises to um, the national executive board and is very much prominent in um, in, in, in um, black Baptist church circles. Um, she she becomes um, really uh, becomes an officer of the National Baptist Convention's Women's Auxiliary. Mm-hmm. Is um, a woman named Henrietta Gibbs who's, who's from Montgomery in in Montgomery um, during this period. And Mrs. Gibbs actually um, d- had had did not attend college. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she just finished high school. Um, but she had um, she 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 could read well and she wrote well, you know wrote, was able to um, write very well and so she um, was able to participate in these these club activities and rose in the ranks became the state state federation president well city federation president then state federation president um, and then um, an officer with the southeastern federation of colored women's clubs so. You know, just keep in mind that these women aren't all college educated. Most of them are, but there are other women who who are there um, contributing, who um, just just are ordinary everyday women. Mrs. Gibbs was a was a homemaker mm-hmm. and um, was was at home with her husband and her children, taking care of her husband and her children. But um, she uh, was able to contribute to the life of um, Montgomery. And definitely to the state of Alabama, and 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 made a considerable, um, considerable um, contribution to the club movement. Wonderful. Uh, now I think is a good time uh, for us to bring uh, Miss Ashley Jones back on with us. 
Uh, Ms. Jones is going to be featured through this series, and she uh, is sharing with us some of her, her poetry tonight. And Ms. Jones, I think you have another selection for us. I do have another selection. Um, this piece comes from my second book, Dark Thing. This poem is about um, the 2016 election, but it's also about the founding of our country um, and how these things that we're dealing with were written into our foundational documents. Election year 2016, the motto. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. We hold truth, men are created equal, that's self-evident. We, truth men, are self-evidently created equal. We hold these truths that men have created. It's self-evidently not equal. We who are not truth cannot be equal, our race too self-evident. We held on for a truce between the self and its need for equality. Victory is not self-evident. We hold these truths. What more can the self hold? What evidence is there that we're equal? We held the truth, not guns, to be self-evident, but bullets and words are not equal. We held our lives like truth, but death was even truer. It's tragic certainty, self-evident. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Jones. We appreciate that. Um, and this one that you just um, presented just now, you said this is in your book. And the first one, I don't know if we talked about that. Where can we find that one? It's in the forthcoming collection called Reparations Now, which will be out in October of 2021. Okay, fantastic. Thank you again. Uh, so, Dr. White, we'll, we'll turn back to you. Uh, so, we're living now. And I think everybody feels it in one way or the other. We're, we're living now in another historic movement. We're right in the center of it. Uh, and, and it is, a lot of it is around access to the ballot for black people. Uh, I remember when we were talking in the first, in our conversation earlier, you were saying that, you know, when uh, white suffragists went to make their appeal, uh, the conversation was clear. Look, if we get the vote, we can, we can block black folks, basically. We can block black men, right? So uh, the, the language was very clear during that time. Uh, the battle lines were drawn and there was no guessing, you know, what the, what the goal was. It's a little nuanced, a little more subtle these days, but, but it seems as if it, it is the same energy that's moving. Uh, specifically though, are, are there any similarities between the period of the book and the times that we're living in today? Anything that you can touch on uh, specifically about that time? Yes, there, there are two, um, two, major, two, two major points um, uh, and two major ideas that are very similar um, between this time and that. And, and one, of course, is the, um, the movement for voter suppression. Mm. Um, one again, uh, and and this is it's it's amazing when I present the proceedings from the Alabama 1901 Constitutional Convention to my students mm -hmm. because my students are amazed that. 
think they are so, the, the conventioneers are so blatant mm. and so openly um, disenfranchising African-American men. They are, they, they make no bones about it. And they're, they're very clear. This is why we're here. Let's, let's let everybody know that we're here because we want to, um, our issue is, is the Negro and eliminating the Negro from, um, the, um, electorate and from the political life of the state. We're very clear about that. And they make no bones about it. They, they, as they say now, um, you hear, hear it said time and time again, they said the silent part out loud, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. They, they said the, the, the stuff that you shouldn't say, they said it out loud. The stuff they don't say in, in quiet rooms that they keep in quiet rooms. The stuff that's usually said behind closed doors or in in, in certain company, you hear that out loud. Right. Um, and so they they were very clear about that in the proceedings. You did not see anything else. Um, uh, the, the 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 parallel today is that you see some of the same kinds of things about um, when people are talking about uh, the the language around things like mail-in ballots and the language around. Um, um, People being it, these these other ways of accessing um, the, the the right to vote or or making the right to vote more accessible. Um, and, you know, there are folks who are who would say things like, you know, we would never, we'll we'll never get elected again mm. if you let everybody vote, right? Right, right. So the, the the assumption then is like, okay, so that means that then we need to keep some people from voting right and and so um, um that's that's one of the things that you 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 continue to hear during this um like oh it's going to be stolen um if you let people mail in ballots um okay so you're saying that an expanded electorate making sure that everyone has access to the franchise means that you are in political trouble. So what does that say, right? Exactly. So, so that means that um, in order to maintain power then, you feel that you have to keep certain people from voting. And so the, the, you, uh, that was really apparent during this time. But the other, I wanna make three hops with the next point. Okay. So you see this, this idea about um, needing to make sure that some people don't vote and making it as hard as possible, people having to go to court um, to, to, so that they can, they can actually vote absentee and not be exposed to the coronavirus, <laughs> which is like killing um, um, thousands of people. Um, you have right now it's 230,000 people in the United States who have died from Corona, right? But, uh, and millions of people who have been infected, but no, we, you know, we, we want to, it's okay. Uh, we don't want people to go and, and, and find a way around being exposed to the coronavirus. And, and people had, people felt that they had to actually make a choice between their health and um, being able to exercise one of the most basic rights that uh, uh, Americans have, and that is the right to um, to choose the people who will represent your interest in this government. Right. right. So that's you have that that idea. The second idea, though, the second part is is really uh, um, really interesting, and that is. Um, 
you know, one of the things that Adela Logan and her, the women of her generation deal with is that as other women in the suffrage movement, they're both in the suffrage movement, but they're separated by race, right? And um, the um, separation between um, Black women and white women um, really, you know, we really don't mend that, right? And we see that issue, we see that issue come up again um, in the 1960s and 70s when the, the third wave of the women's movement start, right? And you have um, women moving um, um, and, and pushing for um, the Equal Rights Amendment and the ERA uh, to be ratified in the 1970s. And um, it is not um, an equal movement at all. Um, and you see um, what happens during the suffrage movement. You have a whole movement because Alabama is, is um, it, it had this wonderful anti-suffrage uh, movement to pop up during the time um, that uh, during the the suffrage movement, and then uh, of course an anti-ERA, like right on time. You know, we we were being Alabama, right? Uh, so we have this anti-ERA movement pop up in Alabama as well. Um, and 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 some of the um, ideas about um, uh, gender, right? Uh, we we don't want to deal with the 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 notion that there are um, people who embrace white supremacy in and now uh, who have because use gender. Um, actually, or, or skip over gender and embrace white supremacy. And that's what you saw then. Um, they're appealing to white supremacy, but um, we want the right to vote actually to counter the vote of African-American men, right? And, and in the 60s, um, as the franchises expanded again, because now bl Black women did not get the right to vote when the 19th Amendment was ratified. Black women got the right to vote when the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was enacted, right? And so um, you have a whole different um, thing going on um, with white women. And then, of course, the women's movement go um, on again. And um, you have African-American women still there, you know, trying to, to work across the aisle with white women. But you, you also have white women who are embracing not only the patriarchy, but also white supremacy. And it's, it's just not tenable. The same thing, though, happens again in 2016. We see that there are, um, it was an uneasy alliance, right? Uh, right after the 2016 um, presidential election, uh, we had this huge women's movement and, and women's march, right? right? And the women out in their pink pussy hats, right? right. Uh, marching and whatever. But that, but the connection, but the 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 connection between African American women and white women were fraught with a, a whole lot of tension, right? Because um, African American women understood that we they had to deal with both race and gender, right? Race, gender, and class. Um, and that's a whole nother um, um, conversation. But um, they, they were not, they were not um, easy alliances made. There were not easy alliances made then. And um, we see it again in the 2020 election that um, there's still a whole lot of work to do. Should we really be surprised by what we're seeing now? 
if we really look at history, if we really look at, you know, the suffragist movement, white women in that movement, should we really be surprised by what we're seeing now? And why, and if, and, and why are we always surprised? Um, because we assume that, and, and no, we shouldn't. Um, right after, right after women get, uh, white women get the right to vote, the 19th amendment. And, and I'm not going to let me, let me, um, do, let me do say that there were a few African-American women who eat through sure. and were able to vote in the South. Look, you know, I mentioned Henrietta, Henrietta Gibbs because she was one of a few uh, African-American women who qualified in that very first round. And the newspaper, Montgomery Advertiser was very, very proud that only two Negro women made it. Because again, they they are all <laughs> all about making sure that black people are not amongst the 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 electorate, you know, or, or large numbers of African Americans, anyways. And so, um, two two the city of Montgomery, two two whole black women. But um, it 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 it's um no, we shouldn't because what we've seen is is especially as as a Southern historian, what I've seen is is, is Southern white women. Um, and, and this isn't just, you know, by what I've seen in the archival evidence or whatever, you know, you have the work of people like Glenda Gilmore and, and Laura Edwards, right? They throw some, yeah, throw some name, some name drop. Um, white women have always sided with, they, they were always going to go with the, the side of power. They, they, they liked being next to the power. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, they were going to make sure that <laughs> they um, um, maintained that connection to white men mm-hmm. because they understood that their power um, came through through their connections to the white men in power, those white men who were their husbands, who were their, their fathers, who were their brothers, um, who were their sons, right? And so, um, and, and we can see that in uh, one of the, the um, most famous anti-suffragettes here in the state of Alabama's woman named uh, Marie Bankhead Owen, who was the director of the archive for, uh, and, and became the director of the archive after her husband, um, Tom Owen, died. But Marie Bankhead Owen, um, emphasis on Bankhead, had two brothers in Congress, right? And so, um, yeah, the connection to power, right? And, and that um, she, she didn't, she felt that she did not have to have the right to vote because she had um, two very proud, powerful brothers mm. who represented her interests, right? right. So, um, and it's important for us to, to understand that. Um, but women like Adela Logan understood that Okay, if white women are asking for the right to vote and they have they have connection to the power and, and, and the, the power structure, right? right? And they have folks who would represent their interests and people who are creating an entire um, um, segregated order in order to protect them because part of the justification for segregation is about protecting white women. Right. Right. And so if they have all of that and they need the right to vote, black women really need the right to vote. Right. Exactly. So I'm I'm telling you, it's um, it's it's 
absolutely, it's it's absolutely incredible. But um, black women understand then and understand now that race is very powerful. The 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 idea of race, the issue of race, um, the issue of um, um, white supremacy. Um, then and now, and 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 what I will say is they said it then. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were very clear that this was about white supremacy then. Very clear. Um, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And in some cases, this is the case now. Yeah. Um, so let me see if I can whittle this down. Um, so Black women are, are widely celebrated for delivering the votes for the Democratic Party. You know, uh, that secured, of course, the win for President-elect Joe Biden and uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, who's uh, taking that position is an historic first, uh, first as a woman and then as a black woman, uh, uh, which is incredible. So this just happened in the November 3rd election. Uh, so as we as we reflect on uh, the lessons that we draw from suffragists like Dr. Adela Hunt-Logan in this continued fight with, with black women uh, seeming to lead the charge, clearly uh, uh, it's demonstrated in what happened recently. Um, can you speak to the system that it seems we're constantly having to overcome and what you see ahead for us, uh, whether it is more of the same or whether we will finally make a shift that will make this less restrictive, this process. What, one thing I want to, I, I do want to say, um, and, and, P, and, and we did deliver the vote. African-American women did deliver the vote, the vote for the Democratic Party. We are their most loyal, um, um, we're their most lo- loyal voter. The majority, the vast majority, 90-something percent of us um, voted for Democratic candidates. So we really are the backbone of the party. But let me say this. African-American women aren't necessarily voting for the Democratic Party. African-American women are voting for their communities. They're voting for their families. They're voting for their mothers who are in nursing homes and, um, and, 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 this, and voting against this ineffective coronavirus policy that's killing all of um, these, these elders. They're voting for their children their children, our children who are in schools um, that are, are, are underfunded, um, they're voting for their communities that lack infrastructure, that lack um, um, basic services. They're voting for health care. These women are voting for themselves mm-hmm. and their, their, their communities. And so if the thing switches, because now uh, before it was the Democratic Party, it was the Republican Party, right? right. And African-Americans were loyal to the Republican Party um, up through um, the 19, actually up through the 1950s. Um, they switched to Roosevelt um, definitely because Roosevelt actually um, listened and Roosevelt had um, the, or, or actually Rose, Roosevelt was open to um, um, some guidance and, and advisement from people like Mary McLeod Bethune um, and other black women who were advising him. And, and later on, it was um, 
it was Eisenhower who was listening to us, right? But but black women are be be very clear that we're voting for us, and we're voting for our families, and we're voting for our children, and we're voting for our future. So that's the first point I want to make. The second point is, uh, and and you asked the question um, whether we think that this system will change and whatever. Well, there are some things to be hopeful about. One thing to be hopeful about is that you have um, African-American women who are uh, people, people understand that um, policy, you know, it, it, we, we, we can march. I'm a civil rights historian, so I'm not going to minimize marching and putting your body on the line at all. I'm not going to minimize writing letters to Congress. I'm not going to minimize any of those things. But the, 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 the thing that changes, change is made through policy. And, and, and that's something that um, people came to understand. And so African-American, African-American women are getting in to congressional offices and they're winning um, elections on the local and state and federal level. And that's because they want to change policy. So they understand that policy change is the game. Um, but I, there are always going to be forces um, be, that want to make sure that Black people remain, um, um, d- do not have the voice, the political voice that they um, they should. And, and part of that is because, you know, Black people don't go to the polls necessarily. And that they'll say, yes, we're representing the interests of Black people. But let's be frank, the interests of Black people in many cases are the interests of, you know, uh, the, the poor, working class, middle class folks everywhere, right? And so usually um, people understand that if they oppose those interests, right, the powers that be, the oligarchy that, you know, is pulling the strings behind the, the scene, they understand that if they oppose those things, that African-American uh, women and, and African-American men um, in the political process are um, pushing for, that, that they, this is their way, you know, they get to put a, fa- a brown face on the problem. It's like poverty, you know, when we know that the majority of poor people are white. Um, but we get to put a brown face on the problem. We get to make this problem problematic. So that folks are, you know, anti, anti-poverty, right? Right. But we also make sure that we, um, those, those people also make sure, you know, they continue to divide and conquer. They understand that. And, and that's the game. That's the game. But um, Black women and Black men will continue. We've been, um, as, as Ella Baker said, and, and I quote, we who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes and we will continue, black women will continue to push for equality. They will continue to push for um, safe communities. They will continue to push for um, a, a good, edu- good, solid education for their children. And they will continue to push for political parity. And that's not gonna change. Absolutely. Uh, were these clubs, and we were talking about the women's clubs at the beginning, were these clubs evolving at the same time as the founding of Black Greek letter organizations further north? Okay, so um, the women's club movement actually starts before the founding of um, your um, African-American um, Greek letter organization, what we call the Divine Nine. Um, the very first 
um, fraternity is um, Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity founded at Cornell in 1906. Um, then you have uh, the very first sorority uh, founded at Howard University, um, Alpha Kappa Alpha in 1908. Um, the next couple of fraternities, um, um, you have Kappa Alpha Psi at Indiana University and Omega Psi Phi um, at, um, at Howard University. I don't know why I'm, I'm blanking on that because today is the the Omega's Founders Day. Um, both of these uh, fraternities founded the same year at different places. Um, and then, of course, um, Delta Sigma Theta um, at Howard in 1913, 19, 19, 20, um, you have Phi Beta Sigma, and well, 1914 Phi Beta Sigma, 1920 Zeta Phi Beta, and then 22 Sigma Gamma Rho. But the point, I'm, I, I'm going down the timeline. Um, the thing I want to say, they are evolving about the same time. Um, for um, the ones that are founded at white schools, um, the Indiana universities, the KSI, um, uh, Sigma Gamma Rho at Butler, um, Alpha Phi Alpha at um, Cornell, you know, it's really like a refuge. These, these fraternities uh, and sororities are refuge in very hostile territory. And so that is partly why you have um, the creation of those organizations there. At Howard University, where the others are founded, um, Alpha Kappa Alpha is really about um, creating a, a sorority life. Um, at, a, 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 at a historically black college. And so that's, that's one of the things she wants, uh, they want to do at um, Howard University. Delta Sigma Theta is a little bit different. Delta Sigma Theta is looking to um, um, actually put into practice those things that they see club women doing, right? They're, they're directly influenced by the women's club movement. And what you um, see from... Um, it, it, and, and one of, in fact, one of the first, um, when Delta is founded, and actually um, the Delta founders were initially AKAs and they actually dissolved the organization and found another organization, right? And so what, when you, what, but what you have is their very first act is to go out in that 1913 march, right? In suffrage march in Washington, D.C. And they're following this woman they revere, Mary Church Terrell, a club woman, the president of the National Association. And they march in the suffrage parade. And, um, and, and, and what continues to inform not just Delta Sigma Theta, because I, I would love to say that, but that's not true. Um, but what continues to inform these women's organizations, um, aka Delta Sigma Gamma Rho Zeta Phi Beta, is their commitment to these ideas that the club women have and that idea of uplift and that idea of changing your communities and that idea of serving your community. And they continue to do so and continue to push and fight for um, civil rights in, in that vein. Wonderful. Dr. White, I think we're going to land this plane. This has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you so much for this time. Uh, Ms. Jones, thank you so much for the poems and, and what you were able to bring to tonight. I, I think it was absolutely fantastic. Of course, I'm floating on a high. I always love these chats, uh, but I, I think it was wonderful. And I hope that our audience has enjoyed it. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much. Thank you, ladies. The pleasure was all mine. 
You've been listening to Why It Matters, Black Alabamians in the Vote, presented by the Alabama Humanities Alliance and funded by the Why It Matters Civic and Electoral Participation Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils and funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. I'm your host, Tanya Scott-Williams. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Alabama Humanities Alliance, go to alabamahumanities.org.